Hey there, fellow behavior professional. And if that's not you, feel free to skip the next 90 seconds. I'll wait. Okay, now that it's just us, let me guess. You're here because you know that using an enrichment framework to solve behavior cases will help your client's pet's behavior, but you're still working on how to implement it to get the most out of this strategy. Or you've tried incorporating enrichment into your client's behavior modification plans already, but your clients were resistant. Sound familiar? Yeah, Emily and I hear about these types of scenarios a lot. It's time to use enrichment to its fullest potential, and our upcoming free webinar, Three Strategies to Uplevel Your Consulting Skills to Solve Behavior Challenges, Happier Pets, Enthusiastic Clients, and a More Rewarding Career Using the Pet Harmony Enrichment Framework is here to help. Register today at PetHarmonyTraining.com forward slash enrichment webinar. Our three strategies to uplevel your consulting skills to solve behavior challenges webinar dives into the major mindset shift all consultants need to make first to use enrichment as effectively as possible, the confidence boosting strategy that will keep you calm, cool, and collected while you troubleshoot, and our number one tip to keep clients happy, working with you, and ultimately referring to you. Register today at PetHarmonyTraining.com forward slash enrichment webinar. I'll see you there. I think one thing that can really trip people up is the notion that intention influences the consequence, and that's not always the case. So sometimes there are intentional consequences. In other words, consequences that we're actually trying to construct or apply. And then there can be unintentional consequences where either we're doing something that we don't realize is impacting the behavior, or there's something else in the environment that is impacting the behavior that is actually acting as a consequence. And what we're doing is irrelevant to our learner. Welcome to Enrichment for the Real World, the podcast devoted to improving the quality of life of pets and their people through enrichment. We are your hosts, Allie Bender. And I'm Emily Strong. And we are here to challenge and expand your view of what enrichment is, what enrichment can be, and what enrichment can do for you and the animals in your lives. Let's get started. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Enrichment for the Real World. And I want to thank you for rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we heard from Ken Ramirez, and one of the topics we discussed was troubleshooting your training. This week, we're going to dive further into problem solving and talk about implementation with the animals in your life. In this implementation episode, Emily and I talk about what to do when seeing with your eyes, not your ideas, is difficult, expanding the antecedent picture, and a situation in which treats were punishing. Let's get to it. I loved everything about Ken's interview. And it was so interesting to hear him answer questions about enrichment that we get all the time and to be able to hear how he answers those questions. Same. I stand by my statement that even though we approach enrichment differently than he does conceptually, when it comes to practical application, we're pretty much doing the same thing. 
And I'm not going to lie, that is super validating. Yeah, I literally put that in the interview notes section when he was speaking. <laughs> Did you see me grinning like a fool and like practically bouncing out of my chair? I, I would have been embarrassed, but I was too excited to care. I feel like that's been your MO for all the interviews, but yes, I did. And especially when he was talking about troubleshooting your training. Well, you got to call me out like that, Ali. But yeah, but yeah, I mean, troubleshooting is a favorite topic of mine, as you know. So let's talk about our three takeaways from what he had to say about troubleshooting, because this is such an important aspect of animal care. Being able to figure out why things aren't going as planned instead of just blaming the animal and jumping to corrections or force is really a critical component of animal welfare. Right. The rat is never wrong. So the first step in this is to identify if a behavior is increasing or decreasing or staying the same. And this is especially a time where you need to see with your eyes, not your ideas. There are plenty of times where I see someone doing some sort of exercise or activity or whatever it is. And they're like, oh, yeah, this is like this is working. We're getting more of the desirable behavior. And then when I ask them to send me a log that says the same thing, their log does not say the same thing. There are a lot of cognitive biases that impact how we think about those particular situations. And so this is a situation where if it's hard for you to see with your eyes, not your ideas, which that's true for all of us at some point in time in our lives, because like I said, cognitive biases, you need to log that. So set up some really simple way that you can use to log that information so that you have tangible data that says, yes, this behavior is increasing or decreasing or staying the same. And then I think the next part of that, which I mean, sometimes these can happen concurrently, just because this is the second takeaway doesn't mean that they have to happen sequentially, right? But the second takeaway or facet of troubleshooting is identifying what is the consequence to the behavior. I think one thing that can really trip people up is the notion that intention influences the consequence. And that's not always the case. So sometimes there are intentional consequences. In other words, consequences that we're actually trying to construct or apply. And then there can be unintentional consequences where either we're doing something that we don't realize is impacting the behavior, or there's something else in the environment that is impacting the behavior that is actually acting as a consequence. And what we're doing is irrelevant to our learner. So we have to identify what the actual consequence is that is either increasing or decreasing or maintaining that behavior. And also we have to remember that animals aren't super great at delayed consequences. Really the thing that happens immediately after their behavior is the most likely thing to be impacting the behavior. And that's something that we mistake a lot. So if you try to apply a consequence minutes or hours after the behavior is performed, I can guarantee you that that is not actually acting as the consequence for the behavior you think it is. Because the animal got a consequence immediately after they performed the behavior and the consequence that you applied happened way, way, way later after about, you know, 80 something other behaviors. So really pay attention to what is happening immediately after the behavior. And that's probably the thing that's influencing the behavior. 
And an example of what that could look like is we get, I don't know if you get questions a lot about this, Emily, with clients, but I do get questions from clients asking about timeouts for, you know, particular behaviors. And we talk about, okay, well, what does that look like? How are you implementing this? What's the actual consequence that's happening? All of that. Because one of the things that I see a lot when clients are asking me if my usually dog, because that's usually the species I'm working with, if my dog is being annoying <laughs> to, to me, to another animal in the household, can I give them a timeout? And I ask them to describe what that looks like when they give that timeout. And they say, well, I either grab a treat and I lure them into their crate or I grab their collar and I relocate them into their crate or, or whatever it is. Usually it's one of those two things. And I ask them, so how's that working out for you in teaching them not to be annoying? And the client usually at this point is like, mm, not great. They're still annoying. And so we talk about Okay, because the timeout isn't actually the consequence to that behavior. It's you grab a treat or you walk towards them. You are in some way paying attention or saying there's going to be a treat here or whatever it is. And this little light bulb clicks on usually at this point where they're like, oh, there's a lot of steps in between them being removed from the situation and the actual behavior that I'm trying to change. And, and so we talk about, here's what else you can do in this situation. And also, if you just need a break from your dog, yes, they can go into their crate as long as you understand that that's not actually going to change the annoying behavior. And here's a, a, a few tweaks to make it more effective for, for you here. So that's an example that I see all the time with my clients where they think that the timeout is the consequence when in reality, that's like six to 10 behaviors down the road. I have another favorite example. We're just story-tastic this season. But I have another example of this, which was actually kind of cute. So some friends of mine uh, have the biggest hearts, hearts of gold. And they took in this stray tomcat who had been really badly beaten up by another cat. And they've spent an enormous amount of money on vet bills and have been taking care of this kitty despite vigorous protestations from the kitty. They have decided to adopt this little cantankerous little dude. I I just, I love them so much. And also because I'm a behavior professional and they aren't, I had a really funny experience where we were, my partner and I went over to hang out, there, out at their house. The husband was showing me how this cat gets really cranky with him. And he's like, I just want him to get on my lap and uh, he'll come up to me and I'll pick him up and, and he gets cranky about it. And so I'll try to pet him. And then he bites me. And I was like, yeah, okay. So first of all, the cat already like said, I don't like this. And then, oh, you don't like that? How about this other thing that you definitely don't like? So we're looking at body language and we're seeing this escalation in behavior, right? So we're at their house and Kitty is watching me from a distance. And every time I look over at the cat, I just kind of slow blink and look away. And the cat kind of starts scooting a little closer and a little closer and I look, slow blink, look away. And then Kitty jumps up onto the arm of the chair. And I offered my hand to let the cat sniff. Far away that the cat would have to move towards my hand. And the cat sniffed my hand and I didn't touch him. And he was like, all right. So then he like bumped my hand. He's like, all right, well, you can pet me now. So I, I did a little head scratch, stopped. 
And he was like, okay, I think I can probably crawl into your lap now. And so he sat on my lap and I didn't touch him. And then he was like, okay, but you can touch me now. And then I touched him. So this is kind of a consent story. But what it really is, is a troubleshooting story. Because the husband was like, how did you do that? How did you get he doesn't do that for us. He doesn't sit in our lap. And I was like, I was paying attention to the behaviors he was offering me. And I was giving him things that he wanted when he offered a behavior that I wanted. And in a few minutes, I got a cat who was definitely not interested in me to sit on my lap. And that cat stayed on my lap for hours that night. He was my buddy. So that's how fast those consequences happen. They're giving you immediate feedback and you're giving them an immediate response. And that's just this conversation that happens. So those consequences, it may seem like little tiny things that aren't that big of a deal, but that's a really good example of a contrast in consequences and what a huge impact that had on the behavior of that animal. And I think that illustrates really well why professional behavior consultants exist because there's so much thought that has to go into it. And we're talking about such small moments in time and fleeting moments in time where like, if you had missed a slow blink, you might have been done right then and there because it's a whole lot more to think about than the average pet parent uh, is really aware of. Our third takeaway is when the low-hanging fruit isn't the obvious answer, we need to dive deeper. And one of the things that Emily and Ken talked about in last week's interview was expanding that antecedent picture that you're looking at. Looking at everything that's happening in the environment that sets the stage for that behavior to occur, and not even just everything in that particular moment and environment, but that could also be what happened previously. Do we have moments where we have trigger stacking going on with the animals that we work with that is very frequently the answer is that there are moments of trigger stacking going on. We need to expand the picture that we're looking at if we weren't able to find an obvious answer. And that's really where enrichment comes in too, because we're looking at the animal's physical, behavioral, and emotional health. So that's also some internal stuff. The solution may not be obvious because it's not actually something that's happening in the external environment, but in the internal environment, something like illness or pain or motivation or fatigue, right? There are things like that that can also influence the behavior that we're not going to find in the external environment because it's happening in the animal. And that's why we are such strong advocates for taking an enrichment approach to behavior change. Because if we consider those things first, a lot of times troubleshooting becomes a lot easier. That is absolutely true. We've said it a million times that if your needs are not being met, then you cannot be the best version of yourself. A lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times there's something in the internal environment that is making troubleshooting more difficult than perhaps it needs to be. And so because there are so many complexities when it comes to how to expand that picture and what to look at, we really recommend going back to Ken's episode. I mean, let's be real. You probably already have about 20 times at this point because I know I have, but going back to listen to what Ken was talking about when it came to troubleshooting and all of those complexities. 
For sure. If you're anything like us, you've definitely already listened multiple times. Pretty much as soon as we finished recording it, I wanted to go back and re-listen to everything he said. <laughs> Absolutely. About halfway through, my my brain was like, hold on. There's a lot of information happening. We're going to need a moment to digest and come back to this. <laughs> All right. So let's get into some troubleshooting stories. You've already heard a few troubleshooting stories today, but let's get into more stories. And the first is I worked with this dog like five years ago. I do not remember this dog's name. I'm going to call her Bailey because there's a good chance that was actually her name. There are a lot of Baileys in my area, especially five years ago. So we're going to call her Bailey. Bailey was this cute, little, scruffy, Thing of a dog. And she was scared of just everything. She had been recently adopted by the sweetest elderly lady, and Bailey was a stray prior to coming to the shelter. It looked like she did not have a lot of experiences with humans, and perhaps the experiences that she did were not amazing. And so Bailey was pretty much afraid of everybody, including her new adopter. This woman came to me with Bailey, asking to improve the relationship to help Bailey not be afraid of her. We talked about Bailey's body language signals. We talked about all the things that that we always talk about with uh, clients who have pets with maladaptive behaviors. We then started working on some hand targeting with Bailey. We said, okay, hands are very scary for her to the point where like feeding was difficult, treating was difficult, doing things that uh, it would be nice to be able to incorporate in our training was difficult because hands were scary. So we decided to do some hand targeting and, and let Bailey come to the hand. I set it up in the least aversive way that I could possibly think of. I sat on the floor. I sat sideways to Bailey. I had my hand resting on the floor. And every time Bailey looked at or approached or interacted in any way, shape, or form with my hand, I would say a little tiny verbal marker because a clicker would have just completely freaked her out. Did a little tiny baby verbal marker and placed a treat in front of her. She investigated my hand a few times. I continued, yes, placing the treat in front of her. And then she stopped investigating. And I said, oh, that's interesting. There's nothing in the immediate environment that's changed. Let's look at the consequence. And I thought back for a moment and I said, you know what? There was the ever so slightest lean back weight shift when my hand would come out to put the treat in front of her. I bet I inadvertently punished her by giving food in that way. And I had chosen that because I thought throwing would have just been the absolute worst and she would have stopped playing with me. I accidentally punished by giving treats in this particular way. What could I do instead? So I was like, all right, let's try like the tiniest baby toss where it's more like a like a flick than a toss. And let's see what that does. So I let Bailey know there's a new way that treats are happening. Here's just a, a freebie treat. So you know that there, there's a new way that treats are happening here. And Bailey said, oh, I did not like placing. I do like this whole flicking the treat thing. That's okay. I can get behind that. And freeze-dried liver just happens to be delicious. And so we got through that snafu. And by the time we were we were done for that 
session, her mom was able to actually start lifting her hand off of the floor and have Bailey willingly come over, happily touch and move away to be treated. So that's an example where the consequence that was happening was not the consequence I thought I was delivering. And I really needed to go back think through the body language that I was seeing, the super, super subtle body language that happened to figure out what was wrong with my consequence and change that accordingly. Such a powerful reminder that only the learner decides what's reinforcing and punishing or what's appetitive or aversive, because we would assume that that would be positive reinforcement, but it turned out to be a positive punishment instead. So I love that example. I have a little bit of a different example of troubleshooting where I was working with these absolutely fabulous clients. I adore them. And they have a fearful and reactive Bernie's Mountain Dog. And we were working together on a lot of stuff. They're super committed. We were making a ton of progress. We were working on the relaxation protocol and they hit a snag where they couldn't do any part of the relaxation protocol that involved them moving away from the mat because the dog would follow them off the mat every time. The standard kind of go-to troubleshooting for that is splitting the approximations into smaller pieces. So instead of doing three big steps backwards, we'll do three little baby steps. And then when the dog can handle that, we do three like medium-sized steps. And then when the dog can handle that, we do three full-sized steps. The dog was still following the client off the mat. And so then I tried splitting the approximations even smaller. Dog was still following client off the mat. I said, okay, it's strange because when I do this with her in our sessions, she doesn't do it for me. But when you do it, she does it for you. I have them send me a video of when they were doing it when I wasn't there. What I noticed is that the client, because when I was there, the client was looking at me. But when I was not there, the client was making direct eye contact with her dog. When we had been working on recall with the dog, she had taught this dog a recall where she's making eye contact with the dog the whole time and encouraging the dog. I realized that eye contact had become an inadvertent cue for following the client. And so she was giving this dog conflicting signals, right? Because she's making eye contact with this dog as she's backing away. And the dog's like, okay, we've, we're locking eyes. This must mean I'm supposed to follow you to the ends of the earth. But you like, don't like that. You're, you're, you are wanting me to stay here. I don't understand. I, I suggested to the client, instead of looking at your dog when you take steps backwards, I want you to look at your own eye level at whatever is behind the dog. So in this particular situation, the dog's relaxation station was in front of a dresser drawer. So I said, look at that drawer handle that is at your eye level when you're backing away from your dog. So she tries that while we're on a Zoom session. Immediately, she's able to walk three full huge steps away and the dog just like hangs out on the mat, super chill. And so I was like, that was the difference. That was the thing. That was the reason that it wasn't working is because she had previously, that dog had learned that if mom makes eye contact with me, I follow mom wherever she goes. And that was interfering with what we were trying to do with the relaxation protocol. And so all it took was shifting the client's eye contact from the dog to the dresser behind the dog. And magically, the dog could stay put while while she did the rest of the relaxation protocol. It was one a little tiny detail that made a huge difference 
But this time it was an antecedent instead of a consequence. It was happening as a part of the cue instead of a part of the consequence. And that happens so, so, so frequently where someone will say, I'm having trouble doing X activity. And we're like, okay, there's this part of the environment or what the human is doing or whatever it is that has become part of the cue. And if that thing changes, then the animal does or does not do a particular behavior. And I think that's why video is so helpful for that. So you can really slow it down, go back, watch individual things over and over again to see what is actually changing when a behavior sometimes happens and sometimes doesn't happen happen. Also, I got the Gilmore Girls theme song stuck in my head when you were talking of the like, where you lead, I will follow. Okay, we're done. Today, we talked about problem solving and figuring out what the obstacles in the environment are. The steps are first, identifying if a behavior is increasing or decreasing then identifying the consequence of that behavior. And finally, when the low-hanging fruit isn't the obvious answer, diving deeper and expanding the antecedent picture that you're looking at. Next week, we will be talking with Lisa Clifton Bumpus. Lisa is one of the most compassionate, empathetic people I know, and she absolutely brings that into her work with animals. She is starting conversations in the animal behavior fields that I think will become some of the biggest topics of discussion in the years to come. I know I said in season one that I want to be Mara when I grow up. Well, I also want to be Lisa when I grow up, and Ken, and everyone we've talked to. Thank you for listening. You can find us at PetHarmonyTraining.com and at PetHarmonyTraining on Facebook and Instagram, and also at PetHarmonyPro on Instagram for those of you who are behavior professionals. As always, links to everything we discussed in this episode are in the show notes and a reminder to please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. A special thank you to Ellen Yoakum for editing this episode. Our intro music is from Penguin Music on Pixabay. Thank you for listening and happy training.